The following is a re-recording of a message given by Reverend Ken Belden on July 15, 2007. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes as we open today. Think of the phrase comfort food. Comfort food. Not junk food, but comfort food. The kind of food that nourishes your body and your emotions. What's your comfort food? Who prepares it? Who's there when you eat it? Who are you sharing it with? Where are you? Maybe it's at your home table or your grandmother's table. Could be at a four-star restaurant or at a greasy spoon down the block. You know the place where you find your comfort food. Could be that it's your favorite dish since you were a kid. Maybe it's something you've only tried recently that you saw on Food TV Network and you just had to have it. When you eat this, you'll feel whole and grateful. Full not just in your stomach, but filled up, happy, contented, loved even. See, what we're really talking about is soul food. The kind that leaves you feeling grateful and blessed that the universe, this life, this very existence, can provide you something so great and so delicious. Okay, you can open your eyes now. I'm trying to give you the sensation of what one of the main characters at the end of the movie Ratatouille is feeling, what he experiences. It's a stern, unforgiving critic, and skeptically he takes one bite, not expecting to like it, skeptically he takes one bite of the meal from which the movie gets its name, and he is transported, magically, back to his childhood. He's back on the stoop of his parents' home, and he's arrived home from the playground, it looks like, and he's crying, and he's upset, and nothing's going right. And his mom whisks him over to the table, and he sits down, tears still coming out of his eyes, and his parents set before him that plate. And he takes one bite of that ratatouille, and all of a sudden, everything is okay. Pure joy, pure bliss. That's the key scene in today's spiritual cinema movie, the one we're talking about, Ratatouille. Now, most of you know this movie is about a rat who wants to be a chef. The rat is named Remy, and he is stuck between the rat world that accuses him of being a complete snob because, you know what, he won't eat the garbage. His nose knows that there's something better for him, and he is called, and he's stuck on the other side in between that human world where he is feared because no one wants a rodent in the kitchen. Now, here are a few of the other cast of characters of Ratatouille, so you can understand their names when I tell you about them. There is Remy, the rat, who's going to be a great chef. And then there is Chef Gusteau, who's Remy's inspiration, his muse, who has died a number of years ago, but keeps coming back as a figment of his imagination. I'm going to repeat that. Keeps coming back as a figment of his imagination. Or maybe he's a spirit sent to bless Remy and guide him on his way. There is Chef Skinner, the opposite of Chef Gusteau. He's the cook who took over Gusteau's great restaurant and is running it right into the ground. He's dishonoring the memory of the great chef. See, because food is only a commodity to him. It's only something that he can sell and make money off of. There is Linguini, the dorky apprentice who masquerades as a great chef, really sort of hiding the identity of Remy who's doing all the cooking. There's Colette, who's a cook in Gusteau's restaurant. She is a craftsperson, an excellent one, a perfectionist. But you see, the problem with Colette is that there's no heart in what she's doing. 
She gets all the technique right and leaves out all the joy, which is the essential thing in the recipe. And finally, there is Anton Ego, who is that famous, skeptical, dour, great critic. Now, I could spend a long time here just extolling the virtues of this movie, talking about how the folks at Pixar are such incredible geniuses. I mean, their Paris at night almost looks as amazing as the real thing does, that amazing city of lights. It has references to Ben and Me, which you were grown up in the 70s like I was, was this story about this little rodent, not a rat, but a mouse, who follows Ben Franklin around and sort of is semi-responsible for all of his great inventions. It's got references to Cyrano de Bergerac. It's got references to an American in Paris and has all these great nods to popular and high culture without seeming too smart for its own good. And I have to say one more thing that is so amazing to see an American movie celebrate France. After all the obnoxious stuff these last few years of turning French fries into freedom fries and talking about, let's, you know, give the, uh, give the Statue of Liberty back to them, no. It's about time that our culture celebrated a culture that gave rise to who we are and truly is the world's really most romantic culture, the French. There are so many, so many other things to celebrate in this movie. So I'll just say, see it. It's really that good. You'll love it that much. But I want to get to the key spiritual themes in the movie, and the first is this. It's the value of intentional living. Remy's awakening begins in the statement, begins when Thoreau, he looks long for many years ago, the first ago, time in the human and says, living. they don't just survive. I went to the woods they to live deliberately. They don't just survive. They, they create. The essential our own great unitarian and say, if I could not learn what life had to teach, and not when I came to die, to discover that I had not lived. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. Suck out all the marrow of life, right in the kitchen there, just as Remy's going to do. Because Remy, if he's going to be who he will, if his life will fulfill his purpose, he must follow the call of fully developing his gift, and it doesn't mean being the rat that all the other rats automatically expect him to be. If he'll risk finding out who he is, then he will have to take that path less traveled. He'll have to learn to let go of what he knows and what he does. Well, literally, this is what happens in the movie. He's stuck in a sewer. He's lost from the home he once knew. And he's traveling and traveling and traveling on that road less traveled, thinking he's lost. But when he comes out from underneath the sewer, you know what he sees for the first time? All along, he's been right underneath the lights of Paris. He's home when he lets go when he travels. He knows that sometimes it's going to be lonely, too. A lot of the movie, Remy doesn't quite know where he fits in, and he's following his gift, and it recalls for me some of the most important words that I ever heard from one of my favorite teachers. It was my first year of boarding school, and I was miserably unhappy and miserably lonely, and one day, in a fit of tears and self-pity, you know, those violins playing so much, those little pity party violins, it was said to me, you know, you're just going to have to be lonely for a while. It was such an amazing truth. It's what I needed to hear. No varnishing it, no overcoming it. Jung said the only way out is through. You're just going to have to be lonely for a while. It's what Eleanor Roosevelt said. And Remy knows this, that he must do the thing, the thing, that the thing he thinks he cannot do. And he leaves what he knows, even when he's lonely guided by that vision of what living deliberately in the kitchen will give him. 
he embraces what he does not know, and he follows Gusteau's urging, who says, Only the fearless can be truly great. Only the fearless can be truly great. And that takes us to our next key theme in the movie. It asks, it really wrestles with this question, is our nature and our culture completely fixed, or does it evolve and grow? See, Remy has to overcome that idea that the rats hold and the humans hold, that rats don't cook, rats don't belong in the kitchen. He's told by the other rats, it's not in our nature, that nature is static and fixed and it's done and it's complete and rats get out of the kitchen, go to the sewers. But Remy's great reply, but but change is nature. But change is nature. It is in the nature of things to ceaselessly change and to relish this fact of our impermanence for the opportunity to know something new. Reminds me of a friend of mine, born about a year before I was. She was born in 1969. Unremarkable that year. Many people were born, millions of people. But two years before that, when her parents got married, they had to steal away under the cover of dark, under the cover of night for fear of their own safety. You see, why is because just a week before the anti-miscegenation laws of the state of Maryland had been repealed in 1967, and her parents, one black, one white, didn't feel that although their marriage would be legal just with one week's coverage, still didn't feel that they would be safe because of the society that they lived. And so my friend Melissa understands something of the fact that nature changes and is called to change. She wrote me a number of years ago when I told her I was going to become a UU minister, and she knew that I came from a Jewish upbringing, and she said, the other morning I was in the shower and a thought struck me quite out of the blue. Do you realize that for all intents and purposes, you are one of me now? Here is why, and hang with me on the subtleties. You were born Jewish, an obvious fact to you and me and your family and friends, but you are studying to become a Unitarian minister, a calling to which you are devoted. To many, nay, most people, this is an insurmountable thing. To many Jewish people, you are abandoning the flock. To many non-Jews, you will seem merely confused and confusing, hard to categorize properly. But you chose this strange existence for yourself. Perhaps you haven't yet experienced this kind of thing that I've experienced so much of my life. But let me tell you, I sincerely hope it does not cause you any great consternation, because most of all, though, I bid you welcome to my tribe. It's the kind of tribe that's made up of those who don't necessarily think they can be easily slotted in just any old place, or where those who believe in nature with a capital N being fixed and done would want to put them. This is a great way of seeing liberal religion at its best as an example of this, of enlarging the notion of what a tribe is, of enlarging the circle of hope, of enlarging that understanding of who belongs, as opposed to drawing a line right down the center and saying, the sheep over here and the goats over there, the elect over here and the damned over here. We believe in enlarging that circle of hope and doing away with those outmoded understandings of tribe. What we've been saying for generations now as Unitarians and Universalists, that liberal religion says revelation is unsealed. The United Church of Christ, probably my favorite variety of denominational Christians, put it this way, and I love it. So God is still speaking, 
Don't put a period where God has just put a comma. Revelation is unsealed. Remy believes that something new may come to be through his existence and following his call. But he also is humble at the same time. At times he wants to take that ego train and perhaps ride it too far and leave everyone behind, the human world that doesn't understand him and the rat, the rat world that rejects him. But in the end, he comes to understand a deeper truth. Although Remy's gifts first call him away from community, at the end he knows that all true gifts call us back into life together with each other. Howard Thurman, the great theologian, wrote, Don't ask what the world needs. Ask first what makes you come alive and go do it, because what the world needs most, finally, is people who have come alive. Gifts might call us away, but they also call us home. MLK put it this way, Anyone can be great because everyone is called to serve. In the movie, it is the crass consumerist, the chef Skinner, who wants to close Gastos after Remy and Colette and Linguini take it over, and all the other cooks have left, because the secret's out. It's not Linguini doing the cooking. It's Remy the Rat. And one by one, they take off their chef's caps, and they drop them on the floor. They put their knives down and say, I am not staying to be bossed around by a rodent. I'm out of here. No rat can be the brains of this organization or the captain of this ship. And then guess what? Who saves the day? Who saves the day and keeps the kitchen humming and cooking? All the other rats. There's a great scene because, you know, rats are dirty. They are come from the sewers. They need to be cleaned. So you've ever seen any of those kind of industrial uh, washers? All these rats, one by one, where the little cups go, go into the industrial washers and... <laughs> comes along and you see the little fur stick out but they are cleaned and they are ready to cook they're cleaned and they're ready to do their job and the truth is revealed once more in Remy being returned to his people as himself not as he necessarily would be at first in their eyes it's revealed once more that we are made for each other we are made for community we get our identity not in spite of where we come from but through it as one character the great Rat, I love this, says, I'm not nobody, I'm part of the kitchen. I'm not nobody, I'm part of the kitchen. See, not every rat can be Remy, but each rat can play their part in that wider whole and in that vision coming to be. This is a vision as old as Paul's letter to the Corinthians. One body, many members, all are essential. The only problems come when the hand is jealous of the eye and the eye is jealous of the foot. And the stomach is jealous, it's not the brain. And the brain says, I'm tired of all this thinking. I want to be the feet that run. <laughs> one body, many members, all doing their essential part. None better, none worse, all different, but all connected. A friend of mine who grew up in the Christian church, he heard this reading for years, for years growing up and thought, one body, many members, what exactly does that mean? Until he broke his little itty-bitty piggy toe. The little one, and he broke it really badly, and he recognized that he could not take a step on it. And he said, that piggy toe is essential. It is essential too, a part of the body that we need. A small part can carry great significance. And this brings us to another thing that the movie really talks about. To know our part in the larger whole is to realize that there is a piece of good news that we're sometimes told that is actually really not good news. 
but it actually leads to greater news, better news. Although we can't be anything we want, we can be something better, which is to be ourselves. I think it's a lie when we tell children, you can be whoever you want to be. Why do we do that? Because really what we're telling them, you're just interchangeable. We can just swap you out and put another in your place and say, okay, keep the line moving. I like this line, this story from Rabbi Zushi, an old Jewish tale. He has a vision one night of the world to come. And he says in that vision, God asked Rabbi Zusia, not, why were you not Moses, the greatest of my prophets? Why were you not Moses, the greatest of them all? The question Zusia will be asked is, why were you not Zusia? Why were you not yourself? I won't ever be center fielder for the New York Yankees. It is a dream. It is a figment. I cannot be anyone else. You cannot be anyone else. But if we are gifted and blessed enough, we have the ability to be ourselves. The movie says this. It's the original book, the original cookbook that inspires Remy the Rat. It's called Anyone Can Cook. It's Chef Gusteau's great masterpiece. But it goes on to be tweaked just a little bit. Not everyone can be a great chef, but a great chef can come from anywhere. Anyone, theoretically, could cook. All gifts have a role to play. And the problems come when we become jealous of others' gifts. And if we define our gifts broadly, we see that we move from this idea of thinking that some gifts are vaulted and some gifts are debased. But if we really say that there are gifts for loving and there are gifts for thinking and there are gifts for doing and there are gifts for creating and there are gifts for dreaming and there are gifts for continuing to dream new dreams up after the old dreams are gone and there are gifts for writing and there are gifts for numbers and there are gifts for organizing and there are gifts for recording and there are gifts for sitting and pondering and listening and there are gifts for standing up and speaking we start to define it broadly and abundantly, we see we have no reason to be jealous of each other. But if we define it narrowly, that's when the fights come about. Jealousy begins when we think all gifts should come in the same size, same shape, same beautifully wrapped packages, and we're made to feel that we must be better or worse than others. This, I think, really gets the great spirit of what that commandment, the thou shall not covet, thou shalt not covet, is talking about. Because if you really think about it, not in the sense of, you know, God up there on Sinai saying, don't or I'll smack you. It really makes a lot of sense. Because of all the time that we would spend wishing that we were our neighbor or waiting our, for our neighbor to fall and coveting what they have. Well, you know, the, the economists call it the opportunity cost. You know what the opportunity cost of that is? That is time not spent living our own lives and the lives that we are given. That's why thou shalt not covet, because thou shalt live. And you can't covet and you can't live at the same time. So with a jealous heart, none of us can live a gracious life. And that's the final gift of this wonderful movie. It is all about living a gracious life. As traditionally it said, living a life in a state of grace. And this is where I want to talk just for a second about the filmmaker's growth. Brad Bird clearly is a genius in conception, in design, as a writer, as a thinker. His previous movie was The Incredibles, about a family of superheroes who are sort of brought back down to life by a world, sort of like with Remy, that aren't ready to accept them. 
But there's kind of a sneering attitude all throughout The Incredibles, that even though they end up saving the world, the world doesn't quite deserve it, and The Incredibles are off beyond community somewhere. you got to remember that it was Nietzsche of the will to power who first came up with the idea for Superman, Ubermensch. When I was a teenager, an 18-year-old young man, I think all guys who are sort of philosophically inclined go through this phrase where you love Nietzsche. Transcend all values. Create the world of your own. Let no one dictate to you what you will be. Thankfully, much like puberty, my absolute love, absolute love of Nietzsche is mostly over, even if he said some wise things. But you can see the growth in the spirit of Brad Bird between that movie and this movie. Perhaps the success he had with The Incredibles has taught him something else. That for all of the will that there is, for all of the belief in human agency, for all of the belief in human giftedness as well, there is the other world that complements that. And that is the world of grace, the world of love, and the world of living in gratitude. And this takes us back finally to the wise but very unhappy critic Anton Ego. In the end, he comes to understand a deeper truth about his call in life. It is not simply to criticize. Anyone literally can do that. Anyone can say no. Snark, as they call it online or in the papers, is so easy these days. Just this morning in the New York Times, in the Sunday Style section, there was a quote. Beautiful people, the uglier, the better. And it was all about Brittany and Lindsay and Nicole Richie and Madonna and waiting for all the famous ones to fall so we can make ourselves feel better. Ooh, look at that imperfection. Look at her driving drunk. Look at her doing, her, her, her doing. It's always a lot about a women, sometimes about men too, but always about the famous and waiting for them to fall. So easy to be a critic these days. Anyone with a blog site can do it. But that's not real criticism. Because Anton Ego, when he puts that bite of ratatouille into his mouth, he eats. And because he knows what is truly good and what is not truly good, that's part of the work of the critic, he can differentiate. But because he knows what is good, he is transformed. The simple dish of the ratatouille into his mouth, and he is brought back to when he was a child, before he knew anything, and what he knew was that food can equal comfort. Food lovingly prepared by someone who loves you can bring you back to that place of knowing that you belong. And so he says this, the new needs friends. That's the job of the critic. What is new needs friends. The critic's job is to celebrate and to help decide what is truly excellent and then push it along because all new lives, whether it's a baby or a restaurant or a little bitty rat, trying to get his dream done, everything that is new needs help. And he helps to foster it, not just to appreciate it, but to help it grow. Because that's really what spiritual maturity is all about. It is about going from that place of just appreciation to being a person who helps and abets creation come to be. To move from just a passive state of enjoyment to move into that place of active gratitude to say, I appreciate something so much that I will foster it. At the end, Remy and Linguini and Colette and all the rats end up saving Gusto's on the final night when all the other chefs have left with 
ego's help. And ego decides, I'll take it one step more, I'm going to publicize to the world that behind this genius is Remy the Rat. But this isn't quite a fairy tale. The world isn't ready, quite yet, for a rat that's making them dinner. And the health department comes along and closes them down. But that's okay. That is okay. See, because with ego's help, Colette complements her skills, all of her great technique, by meeting this little forlorn rat with these great gifts. And she learns that essential ingredient. She learns you got to have joy if you want to be in the kitchen. And so she opens her own place. And there, still behind the scenes, Remy's cooking. But you see, that's the thing about his gifts. He doesn't need all the adulation. He doesn't need the praise. He doesn't need the fame. What he needs is to be in the kitchen making food that feeds other people and giving them joy. That's enough. And so Colette opens her own restaurant. And Linguini, well, he says kind of dorky guy, but he's very friendly. I like those kinds of guys. So they put him out front, and he's the maitre d'. And his gifts are greeting people when they come into the restaurant. He's not there to be the chef. He can't cook a grilled cheese sandwich. But he can welcome people in and make them feel at home. He doesn't need to pretend any longer that he can be anyone else. He is himself. He's out there in front. At the end, Gusteau's is dead, the restaurant, but the spirit of Gusteau's lives on. Gusteau's is dead, long live Gusteau's. That's what living in a state of grace means, that the names will change, but the spirit will abide with all of our lives. If we hand over our gifts knowing that we didn't really own them in the first place, then they will survive us and they will outlive us and we will even outlive ourselves when each part plays their part to the best that it can and finds its place in the whole. Spiritual maturity is just about this, giving over our lives with the best of ourselves and knowing that we live in this way, that we are awakened and what we appreciate we also cultivate and it makes us happy and it brings joy to others, that we decide deliberately day in and day out with each decision and in this way a whole life emerges. Each day, each way, we live deliberately. We suck that marrow out of life and we know that our life is filled up as are others. This is what we mean by the word stewardship. Some of us work with money at times in churches, and we talk about stewardship, and it sounds so sort of dry and old and sort of anglophilic. But stewardship is just this. It's taking responsibility for our gifts and fully giving them back to the life that gifted us in the first place. It's not squandering our days. It's not living anxiously. It's not living with worry. But learning to trust that as we commit ourselves to our gifts, so our gifts will grow our lives. This is the movement of the mature person, of the mature life. And this is one who lives in the state of grace. So that's what grace means. Gratis, free, gifts, gratitude, grace, all the same word from the Latin. This is what Anton Ego goes through at the end of the movie. He says, finally, after sitting and eating and literally the, 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 the wonderfully high, proper critic licks his plate he loves it so much there's nothing left and when he finally meets he demands to meet the chef who made this meal for him and instead of saying oh my god you're a rat or a rat can cook like this he simply says thank you 
for the meal. Anton Ego transcends his ego. He moves beyond what he was to become what he will be. He transcends himself and becomes himself. And he knows the truth of what Meister Eckhart said nearly 700, 800 years ago. If the only prayer you say in your whole life is thank you, that will suffice. If the only prayer you say in your whole life is thank you, that will suffice. Amen. May you live in blessing. Thanks for listening to this message from Wellsprings Congregation. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can reach us at wellspringsuu.org.